It's great to see all of you here tonight. Thank you so much for choosing to worship with us this evening. And I honestly can't tell you how happy it made me to see uh, you walking and uh, driving up uh, this evening and you seated here tonight as the day was wearing on and the temperatures were increasing and then lingering uh, at very high temperatures, I began to despair that anyone was going to be showing up tonight. Uh, so uh, it, even though our attendance, it looks like, might be a little bit lighter than normal, it has never seemed bigger uh, to me. Thank you for for being here with us uh, tonight. Last time I checked, it's 93 degrees, and 93 has never felt so good, <laughs> given how the temperatures have been uh, today. And uh, let's just express our appreciation to all the workers who were here in the heat hours before setting up. So thankful for their uh, labor of love for uh, all of us. And also thank you to the, the young people uh, for leading us in worship. Just a great job tonight. Uh, be praying uh, for other churches. I, I was texting with one pastor whose church is meeting tonight outdoors. And then I know there are other churches that are meeting outdoors tomorrow. So uh, tomorrow in the morning. So uh, whenever you think to pray anything for Cornerstone, for the leadership of Cornerstone, the congregation of Cornerstone, um, regarding anything, always try to remember to pray for other churches too because many churches are dealing with similar circumstances that we're dealing with uh, here. But let me invite you to turn in your Bibles for one final time to Titus. Uh, Titus chapter 3, uh, we come this evening to the uh, last sermon from the book of Titus. Uh, Titus chapter 3, uh, we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 15 that will take us through the end of this uh, book. And if you want to give a title uh, to the message uh, tonight, it would be a heart for people, a heart for uh, people and these are verses that I think are easy to skim over, uh, but they're quite beautiful and they reveal volumes to us about the heart of the Apostle Paul and I think set an example for us for what our heart should be as well. I was reminded as I studied this passage uh, for uh, tonight that as a, as a pastor with fellow pastor friends, there's sort of an inside joke that sometimes pastors will share with one another after a difficult week or period of pastoral ministry. Sometimes pastors will facetiously say to one another something like, man, the ministry would be great if it weren't for people. <laughs> and of course, most of these pastors who say this are joking uh, without people, there would be no ministry. Uh, without people, there would be none of the blessings of ministry. And without people, there would be no one to labor alongside of in carrying out the work that God has called us uh, to. The pastoral 
ministry is something that is done to people, alongside of people, together with people, for the benefit of people, so that one day heaven will be populated by people whose lives were forever changed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the only thing, guys, for any of us, not just pastors, but the only thing on earth that any of us will be able to take with us from this life into the next life is people. So that is where our greatest investments always should go. As we make our way through life, speaking of people, there are various types of people with whom we find ourselves having to deal. There are non-believers, there are government officials, there are heretics and false teachers and divisive people. There are those who will and can potentially replace us in some ministry role that we right now are serving in. There are faithful brothers serving the Lord who can use our help in their ministry and in their journey. There are people with pressing needs. There are brothers and sisters in the Lord who love us and who wish us well. And there are people who don't. We actually find all of these types of people showing up throughout the length of Titus chapter 3. And many of them show up just in our passage for tonight in verses 10 through 15. At the center of the last six verses of the book of Titus is the Apostle Paul. And then in addition to him, there is Titus. There is the factious person. There is Artemis, Tychicus, Zenos, and Apollos. There are those with pressing needs. And then there is the congregation on the island of Crete. And in our passage today, we see something of Paul's heartbeat for all of these people. And we're going to see him speaking in a way that is designed to bring Titus and I think all of us into the heart of the Apostle Paul for such people. A number of years ago, I received from my younger brother, who's serving as a pastor in South Carolina right now, but I received from him uh, years ago a book entitled In Paul's Shadow written by D. Edmund Hebert. And the purpose of this book is not so much to study the life and the ministry of the Apostle Paul, but to scour through the ministry of Paul, recorded in the book of Acts, and scour through the epistles of Paul, and to provide a biblical treatment of every person mentioned in connection with Paul, or whom Paul mentions or talks about, in his epistles, which totals about 140 people in all. And the impression you're left with in reading this remarkable biblical book is that Paul was a social creature of many relationships. And one of the ways to understand Paul is to examine the way that he operated in the context of these relationships. In his book, Hebert says this, and I quote, the Apostle Paul revealed a genius and a hunger for friendship. His powers of friendship sprang from his deep interest in people, 
his tender sensibility to their need, and his heartwarming love for them. He yearned for friendship and proved himself a loyal friend. He also says this, and I quote, The Apostle Paul had one of those arresting magnetic personalities that inevitably produces a polarizing effect upon those around him. Men could not remain neutral toward him. When confronted with his dynamic, disciplined, and decisive character, they were compelled to react. They were either strongly repelled by him or strongly drawn to him. Paul was both fiercely hated and devoutly loved. He had strong antagonists, but he also had many staunch friends who were bound to him by strong cords of love. He was able to draw around him a wide variety of loyal friends and co-workers and effectively lead them in the cause of worldwide Christianity to which his whole life was committed. And we will see that leadership on display in our passage uh, today. Uh, If the advance of Christianity were a chess game, we see a lot of pieces in motion, even in the few verses we'll look at tonight, being moved around the board in these final verses of Titus. And Paul is the one who's moving the pieces and giving the directions. In fact, let me just read the final six verses of Titus to you. Speaking to Titus, Paul says, beginning in verse 10, reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis For I have decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. You greet those who love us in the faith. This is the word of God that we'll look at tonight. We'll observe six ways that Paul seeks to draw Titus into his heart for people and in the process draw us into his expansive heart for people. And the first way he does this, number one, is he tells Titus to reject a factious person after meaningful admonitions have failed. To reject a factious person after meaningful admonitions have failed. If you read the preceding verses, and we looked at this last week, Paul has told Titus to avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law. But what should Titus do with a person who holds to these teachings and won't let them go, and he's trying to spout these teachings. Well, observe the counsel he gives in verses 10 and 11. Reject, he says, a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. The Greek word that is translated factious 
is the Greek word heretikos, from which we get the word heretic or heresy. This word speaks of a self-willed person who embraces a theology that is from their own head rather than derived from God's word. A heretic is a self-willed man with a party spirit who loves to distinguish himself from others and he loves to win people over to his side of any conflict. He's a breeder of division within the church. He'll either embrace false teaching and try to spread that or he'll take something that is simply a matter of personal opinion and he'll elevate his opinion to a level that he thinks is worth dividing people over. And so don't think that a heretic, biblically speaking, is just someone who's spewing false teaching. It's also someone who's just taking his own opinions and elevating them to the status of being worth dividing over. So what is Titus to do with such a man in the church who claims to be a Christian, yet he is behaving in this way? Should Titus reject him outright as soon as he observes him and then put a post on Facebook and tell the world how bad of a person this guy is? Well, not so fast. From the language of verses 10 and 11, the first thing Titus should do is move toward this person and warn him. The word translated warning in verse 10 is the Greek word uh, that speaks of admonishing with the intent of bringing positive change to a person's life. You guys, some of you have heard of newthetic counseling. That word newthetic is this word that Paul uses here. This word is a negative word in the sense that it implies, assumes that something's wrong with the person being admonished, but it's also a positive word in the sense that it represents an effort to genuinely help the person to see the error of their way and to change for the better. And the person doing this admonishing has hope in his heart for the person that he is admonishing. Otherwise, why admonish someone that you have no hope for? As for the admonition that Titus is to deliver itself, it must be direct in pointing out the error. It must be instructive in pointing out what ought to be done or believed. And it should be redemptive with the person's best interest in mind. This is how Titus is to approach and admonish the factious man. And if that admonition doesn't work, based on verse 10, Titus is still not allowed to write the man off and reject him. Paul teaches here that Titus should approach the man yet again and seek to admonish him with the hope of changing his perspective. If that second admonition does not succeed, it is then and only then that Titus is called to reject this factious man. And the word translated reject means to refuse. So to refuse this factious man opportunity to be a teacher in the church, to be a member of the church, to be an elder in the church, to refuse this man membership in the church if he's trying to join 
or to excommunicate him if he's already a member, excommunicating him from the church. Earlier in this chapter, Paul calls upon Titus to avoid the false teaching of these teachers, but here he's calling upon Titus to reject the false teacher himself after the second genuine meaningful admonition. Now, let me point out something here that we can draw from this passage about church discipline. In Matthew 18, as most of us are familiar with, we're told that if there is a brother who is in sin, then we are to go to that brother and and confront that brother about his sin. If he fails to repent, what do we do? We're told to bring two or three with us. And if he fails to repent, then we are then to take that to the church. And the implication is that the church members now are instructed to freely approach this brother and confront him about his sin. And if he fails, Jesus says, to listen to the church, he is to be expelled and treated as a non-believer. Now, if you look at those instructions in Matthew 18, you'll notice that Paul's instructions about a factious and divisive heretic is a little bit different. Regarding such a man, Titus is being told to approach him as a pastor and make two attempts to admonish him. If that doesn't work, Titus is to reject him from the church. Titus is not to send the members of the church after this man. And think about it. Do you know why that is? Because a divisive heretic would love nothing more than for everyone in the congregation to come and try to talk to him. Because every believer in the church who approaches him will become an audience whom this heretic can now try to sway over to his opinion. It's a dream come true. If the elders of a church are sending every member to this heretic to try to talk to him, Paul doesn't want that to happen. He doesn't want Titus sending the sheep to the wolf. Instead, when it comes to a divisive and factious heretic, the elders of the church handle that matter and then render a decision about the exclusion of such a heretic from the church. I would encourage you to study that out a little further and note the comparisons and the contrast with Matthew 18. Now, according to verse 11, after the first and second admonition, Titus can reject such a heretic because he can now safely conclude something about the heretic. Look at verse 11. Knowing, like knowing for sure, that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. The word perverted speaks of something that is spiritually twisted and distorted, having been twisted by Satan himself. And Paul can also know that such a man is sinning. In other words, such a man's stubborn embrace of heresy or divisiveness reveals something that was already true about him, and that is that he was and is in a state of sin. 
Yes, he's sinning and embracing false teaching, but his embrace of false teaching tells you that that man is in a state of sin and was even before he embraced the teaching. And thus, Paul says, such a man is self-condemned in his embrace of divisive heresy, in his refusal to listen to godly admonition. This man is delivering the smoking gun evidence that proves beyond a shadow of a doubt, the state of his own heart. Like flies are attracted to manure because it's their nature to be attracted to manure. So a heretic, a man in sin, is attracted to false doctrines and won't let them go because those false doctrines match his wicked heart and provide cover for him. We learn a lot about Paul's heart in this instruction that he gives to Titus here when he tells Titus to reject a factious man, but only do so after the first and then the second admonition. Paul still had hope in his heart that such a factious man would respond to these admonitions with repentance, but if he didn't, Paul wanted him excommunicated from the church or not allowed to become a member of the church for the protection of the whole congregation. That's how much Paul cared about the well-being of the church body. And he's inviting Titus to care about this as much as Paul does. You know, church discipline is never easy. It's always hard to do. Over the years, I know at least that I've been here at Cornerstone, we've had maybe 10 or 12 individuals that we have had to bring before this church body and to place under church discipline consistent with Matthew 18. And that has always been extremely difficult for us as a church body and for us as elders. We've actually seen some of those individuals come to repentance and and be restored to fellowship In fact, we had one individual several years ago whose name we presented to the congregation on a Sunday morning, letting you know that he was under church discipline. And three days later, this man walked into my office and said, I'm ready to walk the road of repentance. And we had the blessed privilege the following Sunday of announcing that to the congregation, much to their joy. But not all of those that we have practice Matthew 18 on have repented, but even when someone does not repent, even when that's the outcome, church discipline is always, always the loving thing to do for the person being disciplined and also for the protection of the church body. There's a second way that Paul seeks to invite Titus into his very own heart for people He's shown Titus what to do with factious people, but he pivots in verse 12 to telling Titus that he wants him to come and spend some time with him. So we go from the factious person to, hey, come spend some time with me. Number two, Paul tells Titus to leave Crete and spend the winter with him in Nicopolis. He tells Titus to leave Crete and to spend the winter with him in the city of Nicopolis. Up to this point of the letter, Paul has been calling 
Titus to full-throated engagement in his ministry to the Christians on the island of Crete. So what happens in verse 12 does come as a little bit of a surprise to us. In verse 12, Paul speaks these words to Titus. He says, when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. As for the two men that Paul mentions here, we know nothing about Artemis other than what we learn here in this verse. But regarding Tychicus, we know a little bit more. We see Tychicus showing up first in Acts chapter 20, being with Paul on his journey to Jerusalem. We're told in Acts 20 that he was from Asia, which would be modern-day Turkey, probably from Ephesus. We learn in the book of Ephesians and Colossians that Tychicus was actually the man who carried those two letters to these two churches. We also see that Tychicus was with Paul during his final imprisonment, and it was Tychicus who carried Paul's final epistle to Timothy, and whom Paul wanted to replace Timothy as the pastor of the Ephesian church. In Colossians 4, 7, Tychicus is described by Paul as, and I quote, a beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord. Paul loved this precious brother. And it's evident from what follows that Paul is sending Artemis or Tychicus to replace Titus as pastor on the island of Crete because Paul says to Titus, when I send either Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis. When one of them arrives, and Paul isn't sure yet which one he's going to send, Paul wants Titus to leave his pastorate in Crete and travel north by ship from the island of Crete toward Athens, and then from Athens he's to travel about 200 miles Northwest until he gets to the city of Nicopolis where Paul would be spending the winter. Nicopolis was very close to the western coast of Greece, just across the sea from Italy. The upshot of Paul's instruction here is that Titus is to read this letter and throw himself into his ministry on the island of Crete and yet not hold on to that ministry too tightly. The church of Crete is not Titus's church. It's Christ's church, and Christ will be sending another man to take Titus's place in the not-too-distant future. We have no other information about Paul engaging in any ministry in the city of Nicopolis, so it is possible that Paul intends to use Nicopolis as a launching pad to venture further west with his ministry of the gospel once spring arrived. We don't know the specific reasons Paul wanted Titus with him in Nicopolis, but we can imagine that Paul wants to use that time to invest in Titus and to strategize with him and perhaps have him as a co-laborer as they venture from Nicopolis further west with the gospel of Jesus Christ. What we do know for sure is evidently Paul doesn't want to be in Nicopolis alone by himself 
Paul is a social creature who wants to experience the blessing of Titus's fellowship while he is there. So he instructs Titus to come to him and spend time with him there in Nicopolis as soon as Titus's replacement arrives in Crete. We find yet another way Paul seeks to invite Titus into his very own heart for people. Number three, he tells Titus to help Zenos and Apollos in their ministry journey. He tells Titus to help Zenos and Apollos in their ministry journey. In verse 13, Paul says to Titus, diligently help Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. Most commentators will tell you that in all likelihood, Zenos and Apollos are the ones bringing this letter to Titus. Evidently, Paul will be sending Zenos and Apollos to the island of Crete for a spell, and it's evident that they will be arriving there before Artemis or Tychicus arrive. At some point after Zenos and Apollos arrive on the island of Crete, they're supposed to continue in their travels to another destination. We know not where. Traveling on to wherever their next assignment from Paul will take them. And according to verse 13, when they depart from Crete, Titus is to help them on their way. And the Greek word translated as help on their way means to send someone on their way with the supplies that they need. Paul specifies that he wants Titus to diligently help them, meaning that Titus is to pull out all the stops in providing for these men as they continue on their ministry journey, providing richly for them as they go. But the question we're left with as we look at verse 13 though, is why in the world would Zenos and Apollos even be coming to the island of Crete, especially when they have somewhere else to go? Wherever their ultimate destination is, it almost certainly is not necessary that they stop on the island of Crete in order to get there. It seems likely that Paul has specifically told them, go to the island of Crete, bring this letter that I have written to Titus with you. And I think we can also reasonably speculate about what Paul's additional reason might have been for sending them. Notice how Paul refers to Zenos as a what? As a lawyer. This could mean that he was an attorney in Roman law, but I would agree with those commentators who take this title to mean that Zenos was an expert in the Old Testament law. And I'll show you why this is pretty likely in a second. As far as Apollos goes, so hold that thought in your mind that he's an expert in the Old Testament law. That's Zenos. As far as Apollos goes, we learn in Acts 18.24 that Apollos was a man who was fervent in spirit and mighty in the Old Testament scriptures, both in his understanding of scripture and his ability to communicate the Old Testament scriptures in a forceful and powerful way. So these are two men 
who are experts in the Old Testament. So think about why Paul would want Zenos and Apollos to travel through Crete and possibly spend a little time there. We learned back in Titus chapter 1, verse 10, that the Cretan church was having a problem with, and I quote, many rebellious men, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. That's the Jews. In verse 13 and 14 of Titus 1, Paul instructs Titus to reprove them severely that they may be sound in the faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. In Titus chapter 3, verse 9, Paul tells Titus to make sure to avoid, and I quote, foolish controversies and genealogies and disputes about the law. Notice the words, about the law. The Greek word that is translated about the law is nomikos. Nomikos, and remember that word for just a moment. Clearly, a huge part of the problem that the Cretan church had to deal with was Jewish teachers of the law who were espousing false doctrines related to the Old Testament. So look at these two men that Paul is sending with the letter. First, he sends Zenos, whom Paul describes as a lawyer. And you know what the Greek word here that is translated lawyer? Nomikos, the exact word that we see in verse 9. In other words, Zenos is a man who is about the law. He's an expert in the Old Testament law, the very area where people were having disputes in the congregation on the island of Crete. And with Zenos, Paul also sends Apollos, a man who was mighty in the Old Testament scriptures. So it makes sense that Paul would send these two men on a ministry venture and tell them first to go to the island of Crete and bring Paul's letter to Titus and to come alongside of Titus and helping him to combat the false teaching of those who were caught up in genealogies and Jewish myths and disputes about the law. And then when the time comes for Zenos and Apollos to depart Crete and continue on their journey, Paul tells Titus to make sure that they're amply supplied with all they need for the rest of their journey. But it just seems here that Paul is thinking strategically. He's acting strategically. In his letter, Paul instructs Titus to combat the teaching of these Jewish false teachers. And with that very letter, with those instructions, Paul sends to Titus two very big guns to bring him the letter and to come alongside of him for a spell and to help him to do the very thing that Paul has instructed Titus to do, to stabilize the Christians in the church of Crete with the right way to think about these matters. Imagine being Titus and receiving this letter from the hands of these two formidable experts like this and how encouraged he would be to then say, let's do this. Let's do this, doing what Paul has instructed. There's a fourth way the heart of Paul for people is manifested in this passage. 
as he seeks to draw Titus into his heart. Number four, Paul insists that Christians learn to do good to meet people's pressing needs. Paul insists that Christians learn to do good to meet people's pressing needs. In verse 14, Paul says to Titus, our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they will not be unfruitful. By the way, notice at the beginning of this verse, when Paul says our people, he's talking about his and Titus's fellow Christians who are living on the island of Crete. The members of the Cretan church were Titus's people and they were Paul's people also, such that Paul refers to them as our people. Keep in mind that Paul is a Jew and Titus is an uncircumcised Gentile. These two men come from two very different backgrounds and ethnicities, yet when Paul speaks of his and Titus's fellow Christians who were Jew and Gentile and of a variety of ethnicities who once hated each other, Paul refers to them as our people. That's amazing to me. That's a miracle. If you would have told Paul 30 years prior that he would ever talk this way about such a group of people, he would have said that's impossible. Nowadays, there are many people who will try to influence you to only look at people of your ethnicity, to only look at people of your skin color and view them alone as your people over against people of another ethnicity or another color of skin. But notice the difference that the gospel is made in Paul's heart. Notice how easily these words, our people, roll off his lips as he speaks to a Gentile Christian about their fellow believers in Christ who were both Jew and Gentile. This is the language of unity. This is the language of solidarity. And only the gospel of Jesus Christ can accomplish this. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can tear down the walls that once divided us and to make us one like this to the point where we can now genuinely look at believers in Jesus of every skin color and of every tribe and tongue and nation and say about all of them who believe in Jesus, these are my people. These are our people. And that's how Paul speaks effortlessly here. In this passage, Paul says that our people must also learn to engage in good deeds. Notice that word also. Paul has just called upon Titus to richly provide for Apollos and Zenos when they pass through Crete, but he evidently doesn't want Titus to do this alone. He wants others in the church to join in this effort to provide for and help Zenos and Apollos and to help others with any needs that they have. So Paul tells Titus here that he wants all other believers on the island of Crete, not just Titus, to also learn to engage in good deeds of providing for others like this. And Paul is telling Titus this because he wants Titus to bear this burden as a pastor that those whom he is leading would learn to engage in good deeds. 
Paul's language here makes it clear that good deeds is a learned behavior for even Christians. Evidently, Christians don't just automatically do good to others to the extent that they should. They must learn it by being taught it, and someone needs to teach them, and that person is Titus here in this passage. This is why back in Titus 3.8, Paul speaks to Titus and says, concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God may be careful to engage in good deeds. Notice the connection between Titus speaking concerning these things and how that will result in his congregation being careful to engage in good deeds. But it will take more than Titus merely teaching and speaking to inspire a congregation to good deeds. In Titus 3, 7, or chapter 2, verse 7, Paul tells Titus, in all things show yourself to be an example of good deeds. And in Titus 2.14, Paul reminds Titus that Christ died on the cross to redeem a people for his own possession who are zealous for good deeds. So you put all this together and you learn that Titus is to inspire his congregation to good deeds through his teaching, through his example, and by pointing them to Jesus Christ and preaching gospel truths to them at every turn. Here in Titus 3.14, Paul says to Titus, our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs. Just like we saw last week back in Titus chapter 3, verse 8, the word engage literally means to lead, to lead the way in something. Paul is saying that the Christians on the island of Crete need to learn, they need to be taught to be leaders in the doing of good deeds, being the first in line to volunteer to do good deeds to others. And not just any good deeds, but deeds, Paul says, that meet pressing needs. This expression could speak of daily necessities or of desperate needs. Either way, Christians should lead the way in doing good in order to meet their own needs and also to have the means to meet the needs of others, both their brothers and sisters in the church and also non-believers who are around them. Paul says that Christians must learn to do this so that they will not be unfruitful, but instead, obviously, be fruitful in the cause of Christ. And the fruit that Paul is talking about is the fruit of good deeds themselves. That's fruit. But Paul also knows that when Christians do good deeds to meet the needs of others, those good deeds enhance their ability to bear spiritual fruit in the lives of those that they are ministering to. And even those who may be watching the good things being done. You know, the early Christians... In the first century, second century, third century, they went gangbusters with passages like this. And this is how they waged the culture wars of their day, doing good deeds, radically good deeds, to such a degree 
that the Roman world around them had no choice but to take notice and admit their own bankruptcy compared to these Christians. The last pagan emperor of Rome was a guy named Julianus. He hated Christianity, but could not help but admire the good deeds that Christians did for all people. In a letter to a friend, Julianus wrote this complaint about the Christians whom he refers to as Galileans. He says, and I quote, while the pagan priest of Rome neglect the poor, the hated Galileans devote themselves to works of charity. These impious Galileans not only feed their own poor, but ours also, welcoming them into their agape, they attract them. He tried his best to say to the Romans, hey, don't believe what these Christians believe, but behave the way they do, and he never succeeded in that. And little by little, Christianity won the culture because Christians waged war through sacrificial love. In our increasingly pagan world that we live in today, here even in this country, we have opportunity to do exactly the same thing, to show the world the same kind of sacrificial love through the good deeds that we do for one another and toward the lost around us and thereby point them to the glory of Jesus Christ. There are other things we could do, but guys, at least do that. It's what we're called to in this passage. There's yet another way that Paul seeks to invite Titus into his very own heart for people. Let's word it this way. Number five, he invites Titus to experience the blessings of Christian greeting. He invites Titus to experience the blessings of Christian greeting. In verse 15, Paul delivers literally a socially distanced greeting and says to Titus, all who are with me, greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. The word greet here is used twice in this short verse. The idea of this word greet, it means to draw to oneself as an expression of affection and friendship. It conveys both the idea of joyful welcome, joyful embrace. It conveys the idea of affection and kinship and wishing the best upon the person who is being greeted. This matter of greeting may seem like a small thing to some people, but it should not be to any of us if we really think about it at all. We all know what it's like to walk into a room feeling a little out of place and then we're warmly greeted by someone in that room. We all know what it's like to walk into a room feeling out of place and be greeted by no one. My wife and I attended a church a few years ago. Um, I'm not going to say where, just somewhere other than here, okay? Because um, I never know who's going to be watching this. And, and not one person came up to us and greeted us. 
Uh, we sat there, we tried to smile and to not look scary, and no one came up to us and greeted us. And I get it that things like that happen, and we didn't judge the church or the leadership of the church because of that. But the way that we felt as we left was just icky. Uh, the absence of a greeting was hugely powerful. Thus, the presence of a greeting, though we don't often think about it, is very powerful in a way that's difficult to measure. We all know what it's like when someone is talking to us and say, hey, I was just talking to so-and-so and they told me to tell you hello. And they pass along a greeting from someone else to us. We're blessed to know that that other person was thinking about us fondly and wishing us well. We feel a little more connected to them as a result and we feel a little less alone in this fallen world. We instinctively know there's value in such greetings, which is why we will often say to someone, please tell so-and-so that I said hello, or give them a hug for me. Such greetings are, are sacraments of grace, tiny sacraments of grace that can make a big difference in someone's life. When you read Paul's letters, this is for those of you that think, ah, greeting, take it or leave it, no big deal. You will notice in Paul's letters that there are around 40 times when he communicates a greeting, either passing along a greeting from others or asking that a greeting be passed on to someone else or instructing Christians to greet one another. When you read Paul's letters, you learn that every single Christian is called into a greeting ministry. And therefore, each of us should seek to become the best greeters that we can possibly be because greeting is a sacrament of grace. When you show up for our gatherings, like showing up tonight, don't just come uh, and expect to be greeted. Come and ask God to give you an anointing and to bless you as you greet others whether you're an adult or especially if you're a child. I'll tell you, when a child comes up to me and greets me and just says anything to me, I remember that. That's powerful to me. Children, you have huge power. If you go up to another person, especially an adult, and greet them. We all have this power to minister the sacrament of grace in each other's Life, which is why Paul speaks about this around 40 times in his letters. This is why in our services we give you opportunity to greet one another. This greeting time is not an interruption to our worship service. It's a part of our worship of God and our fellowship with one another. It's how we express the love of Christ to one another. There are some of you that have been coming to Cornerstone for years now, and you still remember your first time ever attending, and you still remember those who greeted you many years ago. I'll talk to people sometimes saying, yeah, I've been coming for eight years, and what brought you? And they'll talk about their first Sunday coming, and they'll, they still remember the names of those who greeted them. That's how powerful greeting is as a sacrament of grace. And we regret that we are not able to greet one another with a holy kiss. 
um, or a holy hug or a holy handshake. Um, although I, every once in a while, I see some of you sneaking in a holy fist bump or a holy elbow uh, every once in a while, but you guys are being very careful. We regret that we're not able to greet one another fully, and we look forward to the day that we can. But you know what? Paul and his companions here in this passage, they couldn't shake Titus's hand either. They couldn't hug him. Yet the greetings that we find here in verse 15 still had value, right? Paul says to Titus, all who are with me greet you. Paul wants Titus to know that it's not just Paul who's thinking about Titus, but everyone who is with Paul is also thinking about Titus, and they send their greetings, embracing him in their hearts as family does family and wishing him nothing but the best in Christ. Paul then thinks about all the Christians in the church of Crete, and he wants to greet them So he gives Titus the task of passing along his greeting to them. He says in verse 15, greet those who love us in the faith. In other words, let them know that we embrace them in our hearts, that we happily view them as family and we wish them the very best in Christ. Notice that Paul is only interested in having Titus pass along this greeting to those who love us in the faith. The us is most likely a reference to Paul and Titus and others who stood with them. Those who love Paul and Titus in the faith would be true Christians. Essentially, Paul is saying to Titus, greet those who are in the faith and who love us because of what we represent to them in Christ as we stand in the faith with them. There is such a thing, guys, as a uniquely Christian greeting that we give to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. We greet other people throughout our lives every day of the week, but there is a uniqueness in the way that we greet our brothers and sisters in the Lord. There is a distinctive, unique greeting that we only give to those who are in the truth and who are genuine brothers and sisters in the Lord. We don't just go up to anybody and embrace them as spiritual family, wishing them well in their journey, because some people's journey is an evil journey. This is why in 2 John 10 and 11, the Apostle John says, listen to this, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching that John is delivering, Do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. He's not saying don't say hi to him. He's saying don't give such a person the greeting, the Christian greeting, the greeting of family that a brother would give to a brother. If you warmly embrace a heretic as spiritual family, and wish them well in what they are doing, then you actually, John says, become a participant in their evil doings. But if you greet fellow believers as brothers and sisters in Christ and wish them success 
on their journey, then you thereby show your solidarity with them in their faith and in their journey and in the very good deeds that they do. And that's what Paul and his companions are conveying to Titus and to his congregation on the island of Crete. Well, there's a final way that the expansive heart of Paul for people is manifested in these final verses of Titus as he seeks to bring Titus into his heart for people. Let's word it this way. He wishes God's grace upon Titus and his congregation. He wishes God's grace upon Titus and his congregation. In verse 15, Paul ends this beautiful letter by saying to Titus, grace be with you all. Paul wants Titus to know that his inspired and heartfelt desire is that the grace of God would be with Titus and with the Christians that Titus is leading. This is why Paul has written this letter in the first place. He wants God's grace to go with them and be with them. Now, one of the things, let me say this very quickly, one of the things you notice in most all of Paul's letters in the New Testament is that he'll begin his letters by saying grace to you. He may sometimes add the word peace and say grace and peace to you, but in virtually all of his letters, somewhere at the beginning, he will say to his readers, grace to you. I think there may be one exception to that, maybe two. Even in Titus 1.4, Paul begins his letter to Titus by saying to Titus, grace and peace. And yet, Paul ends most of his letters not by saying grace to you, but grace be with you. Why does Paul change the preposition? Why does he say grace to you at the beginning of his letters and then grace be with you at the end of his letters? I would encourage you to think about that. The answer, at least in part, is fairly straightforward. Imagine someone coming to you on your birthday, bringing you a handful of birthday gifts, and as they approach you, they say gifts to you. And then, after you've opened up those gifts and they're saying goodbye, they point to the gifts and say, may these gifts be with you. That's the vibe. That's what Paul does in most all of his letters. When Paul opens his letters, he's announcing his intention to bring the grace of God to his readers in the form of the contents of his letter to them. And then once that grace has come to them through the contents of his letter to them, Paul's prayer at the end is that that very grace of God that has come to them in the letter would remain with them wherever they go from that point forward. Does that make sense? And that's what Paul is saying here as this letter ends. God's grace has come to the Christians on the island of Crete through this letter. In fact, in this letter, Paul has told them about the grace of God in Titus chapter 
2 and how it has appeared bringing salvation to all men, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust and to live soberly and godly, righteously in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Paul has preached the grace of God to them in the person of Christ and told them in chapter 3 of the kindness and the mercy and philanthropy of God toward them in Christ. And now, having expressed the warnings and the instructions, the encouragements and the truths and the gospel realities throughout this letter, Paul now expresses his heart's desire that all of this grace would go with Titus and his congregation, the grace of Paul's teaching, the grace of his exhortations, the grace of God expressed through his presentations of gospel truth in this letter. He hands them them all of these gifts that are contained in the letter and says, may this grace be with you. Take this with you wherever you go. These believers did not deserve such grace and neither do we, but guys, that's what grace is, right? It's undeserved. And Paul wishes this bountiful grace would continue to be with Titus and his congregation long after they are done reading this letter, providing them with all that they need to walk the path of godliness in a wicked world. And now that you and I are done with our study of this letter that we have looked at over the last several months, uh, this is God's desire for each of us who have studied through Titus. May the grace of God that has come to us in this letter continue to be with us, enriching our journey, enriching us as we seek to live a life of faith in Christ and doing good deeds for others to the glory of Jesus Christ. May his grace go with us as we seek to be a sensible church in a, in a foolish world. May his grace be manifest in our relationships as we love one another and seek to walk in unity with one another in this church and in our homes, in our marriages. And may his grace enable us to show forth his glory. May we never underestimate, guys, the lives that we can touch by walking this way with this kind of grace, doing the kind of good deeds that we've been learning about, and then speaking the truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we never underestimate how God can use us if this grace goes with us and we seek to live for him. Let's pray together and ask God to help us to do this because it is only by his grace. Our Heavenly Father, we're just so thankful to you for your goodness, for your grace. There are things in the book of Titus that are just immensely encouraging as we learn about the philanthropy and the kindness and the mercy and the grace of God. But then there's warnings There's challenges, there are things in this book that have been jarring to us, and there are things that have been profoundly, wonderfully instructive. We're a richer people because we have taken these few months to study this short little epistle that is loaded with grace. 
And we thank you for this manifestation of the heart of your Holy Spirit at the end of this letter that you never want us to just come to a book and read it, meditate on it, study it, and then to walk away from the book. Your goal is always that when we open up a book of scripture like Titus, that your grace comes to us through what's in that book. And then when we're done studying it for a period of time, we then get up and we walk forward and we take all of that grace with us, letting that grace accompany us and enrich us and provide for us and our journey as we seek to live out what we have learned. When I think back, Lord, to when we chose the book of Titus many, many months ago, it was well before I even knew the word COVID-19. Our world was a very different world back in February when we began this series. And here we are outdoors on a hot night studying the final verses of, of Titus. And I've marveled over the weeks how perfectly appropriate this book has been to speak to us in an absolutely timely way in circumstances that I could have never foreseen, but you did. We thank you for your word. We thank you for how relevant this ancient book is to speak to us in whatever current moment we find ourselves. And I pray, Lord, that all that we have learned will continue to help us to be a sensible church in a foolish world and help us to be peaceable and gentle and truthful, showing every consideration for all men, being submissive in every way that we can, standing for truth in every way that we can, being always mindful of what the mess that we were before you saved us, and then never forgetting the intricate, beautiful details of all that you did in saving us through Christ, forgiving us of our sins and bringing us into relationship with you, justifying us, giving us the gift of your Holy Spirit and a home in heaven. And if you could do that for us, you can do that for those in the world around us today who right now are behaving foolishly as we once did. Help us, Lord, to always see through the lens of what we've learned and then abound in good deeds toward the undeserving that we might glorify your name. I pray this for me. I pray this for Cornerstone. I pray this for all of our sister churches, Lord, throughout Southern California and the state of California, this nation, and this world. Bless every true church as they seek to do this very thing in difficult and challenging times. We cry out to you and ask these things, Lord, in the name of Jesus and all God's people said,